Welcome to the second episode of Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by BMO's OIS and cross-currency trader, Joel Prusky. This week's episode is titled Duration Hater. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.writesis at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For those of you who don't know Joel, first of all, you're missing out. Joel is a veteran of the trading desk and is among the most colorful characters at BMO and has very strong views. We'll be editing Joel's language, but not his opinions. So let her rip, Joel. Joel, can you say hi to the audience? Hi to the audience. Welcome, Joel. Exactly. Uh, Joel, is there anything you'd like to tell our audience before we start? Um, I, not really. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be uh, invited onto this podcast. Ben and I have uh, a long relationship, and um, he's a guy I respect a lot out there, and I think uh, the feeling is mutual, and I'm just happy to have somebody who is forced to listen to me for what will be 15 or 20 minutes, I assume. Dispensing with the formalities here, why don't we get going? There isn't a lot on the Canadian economic calendar this week, but the the one highlight is the throne speech, which comes on Wednesday afternoon. So for full disclosure, we're recording this just before the speech itself. I'm not going to speculate on the content of the speech, but uh, we do know it's going to contain the the broad brush policy directions the government intends to take. Assuming the Liberals get support from another major party and we avoid an election, expect details to trickle out over the coming weeks of, of ahead of a fall fiscal update. What we do know for sure is that this year's deficit will be at least $343 billion, and uh, I, for one, would be shocked if next year's shortfall has less than 12 digits, so that's at least $100 billion, uh, and, and probably well north of that. And while, while it's hard to debate the initial round of stimulus, further spending is debatable, at least where it's directed and how the money is spent. And this isn't just a, a Canada question, this is a global question. So uh, let, let, let's let's get Joel's view here. Joel, do you think we need more stimulus at this point? And uh should governments be borrowing ever-increasing amounts of money? Well, I've never thought I would ever hear myself say this, but I think the answer to that in all cases is yes, Ben. I mean, there's a huge demand gap that needs to be filled. And, and I mean, this is the reason why we pay a heinous amount of taxes, right? We, we expect when the times are tough, the government needs to come in and take care of us. And I think this is one of those times, hopefully only once in a generation, but absolutely. Once in a generation. Uh, unfortunately, it almost feels like it's the second time this generation, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see on that. I mean, so so re- you really are a believer. I mean, the, the macro backdrop, while, while things are very much kind of V-shaped in a lot of parts of the economy and you've had a nice rebound in GDP and, and a number of sectors, we're still only operating at kind of 94, 95% of where we were in February. And, and the, the growth from here is going to be uh, materially slower than what we've gotten so far in, in the third quarter. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, for one, would agree with you. The macro backdrop does mean we need or looks as though we need more stimulus. Should that be, Joel, do you think it should be more targeted? Do you think that the broad payments serve and other type of, of income support? Is, is that where things should be going or maybe more focused on infrastructure or, or something else? 
I'm going to extend that. Why don't, why don't you let you answer that, and then we'll go somewhere else afterwards. Let's back it up for a second. I mean, I think we can both agree that more needs to be done given what is going on. And if you believe, like I do, the summer was the best it got, and we're probably going to level off a bit from here, it's clear that we need stimulus. Now, historically speaking, you can look back at what zero or negative rates have done in Japan for 20-plus years in Europe for over a decade. And it's obvious to me, and again, all I have is a regular degree in mathematics, but negative rates aren't going to get us over the edge. We need something else. And I think for the first time, the alignment's in place among everyone who says, wait a minute, it's got to be fiscal. There's been a a big hesitancy to use fiscal going forward, and I think now's the time. So I think the talk about further stimulus has to come from the fiscal side. I think anyone who goes down the monetary policy road of cutting rates to negative or whatever is just, they, they're just missing the whole point. That doesn't do a thing. Rates are already quite low. Borrowing costs are super low. We need to get people to work and making borrowing costs 25 basis points or negative 25 basis points isn't going to make the difference. Where do central banks fit in here? I mean, if I, I get that, that negative rates are not something you favor. And, and I, I mean, if I agree, it's, it's clear that they, they don't work. They don't have their intended function unless it is just to depreciate your currency. But well, let's not go there for now. But uh, I mean, should central banks, should the Bank of Canada continue buying government bonds at a, just a consistently pretty, pretty, pretty aggressive pace? I think they have no choice. I mean, I think their role right now is is what they're doing, which is they've got to keep the supply out of the market because if the net, if the net supply was to hit the market, you know, yields would be a hundred or maybe two hundred points higher, and and that would really be a problem. And I think you have to look at it and think of it not unlike what was going on in the war in World War II. We're fighting a war right now. We are. It's it's a different version of the war, but they have to do it and they have to do it until such time as the economy gets traction, which really is another way of saying when the natural forces to push rates up start bubbling through, they need to be there to tamper them down initially. I actually think they're probably buying too much at the moment, which is why I would much prefer to see them yield curve control this whole thing. And let the market try to find the right interest rate and with a cap on it. That would be my preference if I was on the central bank. Also, like, which part of the curve would you put a cap on? Um, it would probably be, uh, I would think probably fives. And then let the rest of the curve do what it wants? Well, I'm th- I'm with limits, because if, if all of a sudden the curve steepened out 200 basis points from fives to 30s, then you may have a problem with that. So, you know, may- maybe somewhere for a combination of fives and tens would, okay. be, my, would be my call. Fair enough. I mean, should there be a limit to that? I guess the, the, what your, your analysis, your, your view begs the question. You say that, that, that this is all very appropriate for now and maybe yield curve control versus what they're doing. Okay. That's to some extent semantics, uh, at least for now. Are they going to be well enough positioned to pull back? Are they going to have the fortitude, the institutional fortitude to pull back when conditions improve sufficiently? I think there's two roads we're going to go down. I think one is the one you and I talked about where, you know, the advent of 5G technology is going to change everything. And, and uh, you know, we can we can really grow ourselves out of that. And then it'll become obvious we'll be able to take the shackles off. The other one is, which is the one I fear when I go to bed at night, is this is the beginning of the end. Right. I mean, this is the this is the we've been putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound since Greenspan started cutting rates in 2000. And 
we finally have now an infected pus filled wound that's never going to heal. And the only thing that's going to make it go away is killing the client and which is blowing up the, the entire monetary system, blowing up the monetary system. See, he's very cheery, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 where to go from there? I mean, I guess so then that, that would imply that, that you're a buyer of gold. I don't think you can own enough gold, actually. I honestly don't. I, I really don't think you can. I mean, this is not a, you know, if you look back historically, you know, the Japanese were going full throttle with QE and zero rates and yield curve control and everything. And, and they were kind of in their own world. I mean, we all had troubles, but nothing, you know, we never put the pedal to the metal the way they did. And I think you're in a, in a world now where everyone has the pedal to the metal. And, you know, we have an expressed desire to raise inflation so we're we're trying now to create inflation to devalue our own money based on an arbitrary two percent number that we came up with however many years ago and so well, i guess i guess what's the alternative i mean that so the, what, what 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 the central bankers would say is we've had since i i the early 90s when when inflation targeting was first adopted uh you've had Pretty good times overall for the global economy, for the most part. I mean, the financial crisis notwithstanding, that was not, I, I wouldn't call that an inflation targeting uh, driven problem. But I mean, things have been been less volatile generally. And uh, inflation has, I mean, they've done their job from an inflation perspective, whether whether that's the right way path to go for the future, I, I don't know. But if, if not inflation targeting, uh, well, what exactly should they be doing? But do you think it was them who, who were so successful in beating down inflation over the last 20 years? Or, or is it demographics and technology? I mean, honestly, like, I don't know that they can really take credit for that. That's a super fair point. I actually, I, I do agree on the demographic front and particularly technology has been part of it. But uh, you can also argue that, I mean, like China entering the global economy had a, played, played a pretty large role when you when you add a billion people worth of labor supply to the global market and, and you get those folks to work. I mean, it is going to keep inflation pretty subdued for, for a long time. We may be nearing the end of that, I guess. And uh, maybe that's part of the risk is you get all these central banks printing money without end and you have not the end, but a, a dwindling supply of cheap labor uh, or available cheap labor to, to the world, to, to, to develop the world consumers. And that helps push CPI higher and then maybe we do get that that burst of inflation so uh i guess well i mean it's clear given your view on gold and 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 money that you think inflation is likely going materially higher over the next kind of three to five years or or is the timeline different than that well you know like i say i think what we're going to see is as the fiscal is going to kick in eventually i hope we have some sort of vaccine or, or, or some kind of herd immunity that people will feel comfortable going back and doing things they did. And we, you got a, a situation where I think the Fed has become less independent. I think the Bank of Canada is not independent. I know the ECB has never been independent, I really don't think. But again, I don't think any central bank's independent anymore because we're all in it together. And, and this was kind of, I think that, that COVID was simply an accelerant as opposed to a game changer. I mean, I think that, you know, we've been talking about going down the road of MMT for a decade. And I think the drum beats got louder even a year ago. And then this happened. And, and to me, this is just an accelerant that's going to get us here. You know, what's going to cause inflation is a Federal Reserve that says, hey, we're going to let things run hot because we know how to control it, right? If it gets out of control, we'll just yank on the yields and let them go up, and then all of a sudden that'll slow the economy down. But I mean, 
terminal rate keeps going lower and lower. And the more politicized the Fed gets, the less and less they're going to be able to pull that shoot when they think they need to. And who's going to complain about about growth, right? I mean, the Fed's basically changed their mandate anyways, right? They're, they really want to talk about ignoring inflation and let growth run hot. So when we get that growth running hot, they're no longer going to be the guys taking away the punch bowl. They're going to say, this is what we want. Hey, and we've got two decades of underperformance of CPI or PCE or whichever particular inflation target they wish to pick, none of which resembles my life or anyone else's life I know. But nonetheless, they believe inflation has been 1.65% instead of 2% for, for two, 20 years. They can make that up over the next 10 a couple of counterpoints. One, when I mean, your inflation basket is not not a not the average citizen's basket, to <laughs> to put things kindly. Uh, when you, when you go to the store, if you want an avocado, you're buying an avocado. It doesn't matter if it costs one dollars, two dollars, three dollars, or five dollars. You're buying it. You don't care. Uh, but that that is not the average consumer. I'm not not in North America. That's for sure. Uh, and so there. I mean, I have some sympathy for you on the inflation side because I I to some extent agree on the basket, but. Uh, Things are not quite as heated as they seem. What I would rather say is that, like, where we haven't seen inflation, we haven't seen that much inflation on the, on the on the in the CPI basket, notwithstanding the issues with that in Canada and elsewhere. It's been more on the asset price front. And so, like, why why is that dynamic going to change? Why aren't we just going to see more asset price inflation over the next whatever three, four, five, ten years? Uh, and CPI just stays subdued in perpetuity, kind of like in Japan. And and part of that's also demographics. I mean, the the demographic profile is not improving at all. Uh, for, for the next number of years. I think populism's changed that, right? I mean, I think having gone through 08 and, you know, seen what's happened, which is all the inflation went into asset inflation and healthcare and housing and all the other things that people need to get a leg up on, not just people who can afford an avocado that's $3 this week. But, you know, I think there's a populism movement saying, well, what are you guys doing for me this time? And I mean, you even saw the Fed today, I forget who it was, Bostic, maybe you came out talking about creating some form of digital money so the Fed could put actual digital money in an individual's bank account. That's my idea. <laughs> you want to talk about inflation, that's how you make inflation. Right. For, give them a 60-day window to spend it. And if they can't spend yep. it, it disappears, right? And and I do. I think because they've watched 10 years of, of asset inflation and housing inflation and all the other kinds of inflation that they don't want... They want wage inflation, for example. How do you start? How do you, you know, the truth is what they really want is real wages to go up. And I think that's a lot harder to achieve. That's extraordinarily difficult to achieve. I think if they can, if any of the central banks can get there, I think at this point, that would be really, really very much something. But the, but the next choice is to just get, just to get inflation up, because in that case, inflation would be the opiate of the masses. Yep. I, because people yeah, would think they're making more money, even though they don't realize until someone shows them a graph of real wages that they're actually stagnating or, or doing worse. But they'd say, but it doesn't matter. I got a 6% raise this year. Ha <laughs> ha. Even though all prices went up 8% and they're actually uh, worse off in reality. Yeah, right. I mean, that that's certainly an, uh, a, a possibility out there. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't rule that out. And so I guess let's, let's bring this to the market. I guess what bringing me back to the title of the episode today, Duration Hater. How does this color your view on the market? Well, you know, I mean, I think a lot of my views are fairly Canada-specific, mostly because I've traded Canada for the better part of 30 years. But, you know, I for years, I think our curve has always been too flat, and that was a supply-demand imbalance. You know, the government refused to 
increase uh, WAM, weighted average maturity, even though there was an obvious demand for it, you know, the 10s, 30s bond curve was flat, for example. I mean, if that doesn't scream issue more long bonds, I don't know what does. And now that we finally actually have a lot of supply in the long end, the effect of that is heavily muted because the Bank of Canada is buying everything. And that's fine. I mean, I think they're doing QE for the right reason. I think it's not exactly the best kind of QE, but nonetheless, that's debatable. But at some point with 10-year interest rates at 50 basis points and 30-year interest rates at, at one percentage point, 100 basis points, you have to think in the bigger picture, the next 50 or 100 basis points, if not 300, has got to be higher. And I feel like in our business, it, the game isn't we're buying this because it's good value. The game is we're buying it because someone else is going to pay us five cents more for it. And if I think about investments I would want to make with my personal money, would I lend the government of Canada money for 30 years at 1%? I mean, I wouldn't even lend my wife money at 1% for 30 years. <laughs> I guess so. So then you're not, you don't think we're headed the way of Japan. I, I mean, if, if we go down the road of negative rates and the Bank of Canada and the Fed decide to do infinite balance sheet and buy everything, I, you know, I suppose you could see rates at zero, 30-year rates at zero. I don't know that they're going to spend 30 years down there. That's all. So, uh, you know, if you're buying 30-year bonds, it's because you want to sell them to someone at a higher price because you think at some point someone's going to pay more for them, as opposed to this is a good use of my investment portfolio. I've been, you know, 60-40 has been the way to go since 1970 when yields were at 14%. I find it hard to believe that 60-40 is going to be that great when yields are at 1%. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, holding a 30-year bond for now till well into my retirement, hopefully, and getting getting that wonderful 1%, not quite going to cut it. Uh, so you clearly, I mean, you're, you're a seller of the long end. So I, I'm going to ask you for what, what are your two favorite trade ideas right now? Uh, and then I'll give a little chime in on my own. Unfortunately, it's been very quiet of late, and I think some of the dislocations that often happen in the Canadian market aren't as pronounced. You know, the, the busier things are, the more flows that come in tend to, due to the de-risk mentality of the street, push things to extremes. I'm not really seeing that. If you look at the OIS curve, very flat out to the you know, next two years, et cetera. I mean, there's still, I guess, some pennies to be picked up in the Canada versus the U.S. in the front end in the sense that the U.S. has rate cuts priced in small while we have rate hikes priced in small. So, you know, there's a, there's a little bit there, but we're talking scraps. Um, I think the bigger trade I love, I just like the steepeners. I think Canadian steepeners are the way to go, whether it's 5s, 30s or, or, or 10s, 30s in Canada. I think every time that curve flattens, you just have to pay the steepener because at some point I think the central banks are going to lose control of the bond market and it might not be now uh, it may be in six months or even in, in a few in a year or two and when that happens they're not going to be able to contain the lack of interest in long end duration very fair anything on BA LIBOR you'd like to discuss well I mean again the, the curve is the cross currency curve is very steep and very left it's the steepest curve in any country out there I think that it's a, just a lack of risk uh, that's causing it. And at some point, the provinces who are equally, if not more so bankrupt than the federal government will need to issue and they're going to need to issue abroad because the domestic buyers will be satiated. And when that happens, I, I would think uh, cross-currency uh, basis swaps can move significantly higher from where they are right now. All right. 
Thanks, Joel. From my seat, I'd echo Joel's uh, Joel favoring steepeners. I, I, I favor them as well. I, I would put in a bit of a caveat short term, though. The next kind of month or so, six weeks with the U.S. election, the presidential election coming early November, there, there's room for some risk off move here. Uh, but I would use any any strength, any flattening in the Canada curve to put on those steepeners again, uh, just f- fading that long end strength. Longs anywhere around 1% seems like a, a pretty good place to, to get short. Otherwise, uh, I mean, kind of similar view, short term, a little more cautious for, for any any investors that have done well so far this year. Uh, I mean, bought the dip in, in credit that we saw in, in, in April, in March, April. Maybe it's time to take some chips off the table as we are getting closer to year end. And uh, moving from Provis into CMBs, I think, is probably a, a, a good move at this point, given where risk is, given where the froth is in risk. And again, the, the election coming up, I think I think that's going to be a growing talking point. And, and from an investor perspective, over the next couple of weeks, at least, just taking a more cautious view, just there's so much uncertainty around the election, not just who wins, but on, on the timing of, of when we actually get the results. I mean, it could, could be delayed for days or even weeks is, is, is very much possible. So uh, I think caution is, is probably the watchword going forward for at least the, uh, the next couple of months. And I guess we'll, we'll leave it there for today. Joel, thanks very much for, uh, for joining me this week, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back soon. I hope I'm invited back, Ben. <laughs> thanks again. Take care, everybody. Bye. See ya. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.